Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear episode 5 of my book, Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. In this episode, as well as the next, I'm going to cover all of chapter 3 in the book. In the last few episodes, I covered mainly the 585 BCE eclipse that made Thales of Miletus famous and helped end the Lido-Median War. But an eclipse is nothing more than an interplay between the sun, the moon, and the earth. And in the next couple of episodes, I'm going to talk about how that very interplay between those three celestial bodies has led to difficult mysteries for the human race and how we have tried to solve the problem of time based on how these three bodies move throughout the solar system. Also in the last few episodes, I've mentioned several ancient civilizations, such as Egypt and Media and Lydia, but I also mentioned Babylonia, and they're going to show up in this episode as well due to their astronomical and mathematical genius that helped formulate some of the most basic and essential information that our entire civilization is still built upon to this very day. In this episode, as well as the next episode, I'm going to do a little bit of an interplay between math and mythology, the hard science versus the beliefs around them, because during this time period, when we go back thousands of years, you couldn't really have the math without the mythology. And I use both of these things and try and meld them together to give a more accurate view of how the ancient people of our planet viewed the moon and the sun, as well as the Earth's relationship to them. Math is definitely not my strong point, but I try and do my best to show appreciation for it in this episode, while also balancing it out with the mythology of different cultures. And while I have been doing a lot of deep dives in time, sometimes a few thousand years, we're going to go back from 2,500 years ago to about 5,000 years ago, and even go deeper than that to understand how important the sun and the moon have been to humanity for as long as we have evidence for. If you've been enjoying these episodes, please think about liking, rating it, and reviewing it so that it can get out more. 
If you would like to donate, I offer a free PDF copy of my book for any donation that you choose to give, as well as any of the other pieces that I've written before this. If you'd like updates for when the next episode comes out, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And you can always reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. So let's get to Chapter 3 of Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. Chapter 3, Assembly of Time, Part 1, Discovering a Cycle, the Lunar Calendar. Thales might have been able to predict his famous eclipse with some forgotten understanding of the movements of the sky. Like a clock with all of its intricate gears, the universe keeps time. On Earth, the earliest clocks that mattered to us were the Sun, Moon, and Earth. Even as we had yet to fully understand what they all were or meant, the dance between these astronomical colossi brought order to our otherwise entirely chaotic world. We have relied on them to give us direction from the beginning and how they interact with each other gives us different measures of time. Yet, while the cycle of the moon produces one type of time, and the cycle of the sun produces another, humans had found it nearly impossible to create an ultimate clock that incorporated both solar and lunar time together. Mending the differences between these cosmological clocks would confound the most brilliant minds for thousands of years. The universe surely must have puzzled the people of antiquity even more than it puzzles us today. For with all of their impressive and long-lasting knowledge, They could not know exactly what they were looking upon when gazing into the sky. By this time in human history, our species had spread from the tropics to the polar regions settling on every continent but Antarctica. Our species had confronted every unknown environment and not only survived in them, but adapted to them and called them home. The first humans to experience a snowy winter or a new forest eagerly observed and interacted with each environment until they had come to understand it intimately. Only places too deep for humanity, above or below, were beyond our grasp. And while the sea certainly came with its fair share of mystery, it at least could be touched 
anyone could submerge themselves in it. So it was the endless sky that became the most foreign place of all, and it began just above an arm's reach over our heads and extended up into infinity. The sky offered the ultimate challenge for those heady forebearers like Thales of Miletus and other countless astronomers that came thousands of years before him in places like Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, India, and China. There was a common language of the heavens that could be discovered independently despite the vast distances between each empire and the different cultures surrounding them. Universal truths that could be divined through observation. Look closely enough, and a ubiquitous message could be deduced in a world of dizzying variability. The studying of the sky was likely the primary reason for the precision that gave rise to the science of mathematics, a language so powerful that it communicates without words. Ancient astronomers were simultaneously mathematicians because the two studies were often synonymous with each other. Strange symbols and geometric shapes were used and shared between the brilliant minds that took the time to understand the sky, which is likely why Thales had a reputation for both mathematical and astronomical discoveries. Of course, the perfect practical intersection between astronomy and mathematics is attempting to make some sort of universal timekeeper that incorporates both the movements of the sun and the moon. Yet thousands of years came and went without success, each millennium's most brilliant minds trying and failing at grasping the precision of the universe for themselves before perishing back into the earth. Creating a timekeeping system that worked across great distances and long periods of time was an omnipresent challenge in antiquity. Each group of people marked time in a way that made sense to them with a chronometer that was imbued with beliefs, events, and opinions that were part of each distinctive group's culture. The vast distances between people of the ancient world allowed for vastly different belief systems, and therefore kept time fractured and subjective. We have come so far with the standardization of time today that we don't even consider the monumental hurdles that it took to bring us here. Even the idea that time was measured and thought of differently in different places can sound foreign and unusual to us since the way we view time is such a fundamental aspect of our perception of reality. But as late as the 19th century, 
standardizing time was still a very complex issue and became a central focus of the railroad industry for running trains across the different time estuaries, their solution resulting in the modern-day time zones. How people measure time plays an integral role in the structure of their thinking. Even the way we view time today has fundamental impacts on the way we think. Meetings, deliveries, payments, social gatherings, cultural events. Our perception of time undergirds everything in how we think, act, and behave. And what is appropriate in one culture can be seen as an affront in another. And the only difference between the two actions may just very well be the perception of the meaning behind the timing. In modern civilization, those who are not bound to time by the minute or sometimes even the second can be socially excluded or passed over in career opportunities as less stringent temporal templates are often considered inefficient. Today, timing has literally become everything. But the people of the ancient world had some options when deciding to mark the passage of the eternal mystery known as time. Naturally, there was the sunrise, which marked a new day and was reliably consistent enough to satisfy most people for most of their needs. But counting the days could be tedious, especially if it extended over the course of several seasons. The seasons themselves offered another measurement of time. Summer, autumn, winter, and spring all had their indicators that would have been easily identifiable to anyone from prehistory. But the seasons brought their own complications, as they did not change with the same precision as a day, and different geographic locations had very different variations in the seasons from one another. These variations made using the solar year, also known as the tropical year, tedious and abstruse to use. So it's not surprising, then, that people look toward the moon to provide what the day or the seasons could not. The most obvious celestial object in the sky after the sun, this monochrome, enigmatic, shape-shifting orb was the perfect ancient clock. Around 3000 BCE, about the same time that Egyptians were only beginning to build their civilization after the Green Sahara was lost, the ancient Babylonians in Mesopotamia were already well-established in marking time with the moon. They used a standardized lunar calendar system, whose likeness wasn't found anywhere else in antiquity. A new month would generally start with a new moon, and each year would fit just about 12 months inside of it. 
a 12-month year is something that we still carry forward from this distant civilization across 5,000 years of history into the modern day. And while the lunar year comes close to the solar year, it's still roughly 10 days short of the 365-day year as we know it today. With a lunar year lasting an annoyingly close 355 days. The ancient Babylonians would have recognized this roughly 10 day drift between the lunar year compared to the solar year. This discrepancy between the lunar year and the tropical year was a serious problem for the Babylonians. It would only take three lunar years to bring the difference of about 30 days between the two calendars, making the first moon of the year quickly slide into the preceding season, frustrating the unification of the lunar and solar systems. 5,000 years ago, there was no such thing thing as standardization like we know it today. Measurements of time were used for practical purposes that fit a practical need, mostly based in one location. But as these ancient cities began to grow and trade amongst each other in an unprecedented way, the idea of standardizing time became increasingly important. Supplies and food critical for city living would need to be reliably farmed, manufactured, and delivered. Depending on the individual, their livelihood would use different measurements of time from various astronomical bodies. To the farmers, it was always driven by the seasons, which helped them know when to plant, tend, and harvest. But a city-dwelling merchant dealing in copper ingots might rely more on the phases of the moon, as copper traveling from a mine to a refinery to the merchant would take regular intervals of time that were more easily measured on the 12 moon cycles each year. Differences in marking time must have caused countless missed connections, delays, and misunderstandings between different peoples of antiquity. Even today, daylight savings time can cause some confusion every year, and that's with instant communication and a highly standardized timing system. The tantalizingly similar annual cycle of the moon and the sun were so close that the difference of only about 10 days led to untold numbers of scholars and astronomers attempting to unify them. The Babylonians had a simple yet willfully inaccurate fix and called for the alluring solution of just averaging between the sun and the moon cycle and create a year that is more or less 360 days long. This was called the lunisolar calendar. 
that number, 360, has become so ingrained in us that 360 came to represent the degrees in a circle. Ancient astronomers were able to note that the sun moved about one degree in the sky each day, and if the year was roughly 360 days, then they figured there must also be 360 degrees in a circle. This belief of a 360-degree circle is one of the few surviving remnants of this forgotten Mesopotamian world. Its value so important that it has been passed down through multiple civilizations and outliving each one. The 360-degree circle is a concept that goes back over 5,000 years and likely originated from studying the sky, another gift of the heavens to some forgotten and careful observers. Who was this ancient Babylonian version of Thales that was able to determine something so foundationally profound as the 360-degree circle that has gone on to span millennia? As the dunes of time have covered most of ancient Babylonia, the reality is it is likely buried forever. A circle is a notable shape because if you were to travel along its edge, you could come back to your original position without any known turns or angles. Therefore, surprisingly, Traveling along a circle can actually feel no different than traveling along a straight line. The word circle is at the very root of the word cycle, because a cycle was exactly what our distant ancestors realized they were experiencing about once every 360 days on Earth. Therefore, the ancient Babylonians cut the circle up into 360 equally spaced degrees, each one possibly representing a day of the year, just as they did with their calendars. From there, each one of these 360 pie-shaped degrees can be split into 60 further slices, called minutes or arc minutes. And from there, they were broken down even further and divvied up each minute into 60 equal arc seconds, leaving them with 60 arc seconds in an arc minute, 60 arc minutes in a degree, and 360 degrees in a circle. For this reason, minutes and seconds can be found both on a clock as well as on a map depicting latitude and longitude. Minutes and seconds are not about the time or geography of Earth specifically, but instead they relate to an inherent truth about circles, the same circles that looked like the sun and the moon and that rhymed with the cycles of the Earth's seasons and the moon's position over the course of a year. The circle was a fundamental shape 
to the universe, laden with secrets to its inner workings. No doubt this is the reason why Thales would have been interested in the laws of circles during his lifetime. So then, what is it about the number 60 that makes it so special as to divide the 360-degree circle into 60 minutes and further divide that into 60 seconds? The Babylonians used what is called a base 60 system, also known as the sexagesimal system, which is why it still lives through our clocks and global navigation systems. But in contrast, our modern minds are most familiar with the base 10 number system, which also just happens to be the precise number of fingers on both hands. And if conceiving what things would be like under different forms of time can be difficult, it's even more difficult to understand differences in number systems. Base 60 is not just the same numbers as the base 10 system, but in fact a system that uses wholly different numbers and mathematics. In my book, I have an image of the ancient Babylonian number system for base 60, where they have a completely different symbol for everything from 1 to 59, where the number 60 was actually the same symbol as 1. Kind of like how once we go to 10, we start reusing numbers again in the base 10 system. So, with our base 10 system, we tend to struggle a little more when calculating differences in distances by latitude and longitude, or doing any kind of math related to time. And so, why would it be that the ancient Babylonians used a seemingly more complex counting system of base 60 when the base 10 number system was literally right at their fingertips? It appears that base 60 was chosen for its functionality and simplicity over base 10, which we struggle to believe because we are so conditioned to base 10 today. However, base 10 is not without its faults, and it took centuries before someone was able to find a way to address them with the decimal system, where the Latin root for 10 or deci, is hidden right inside of its name. The numbers 0 through 9 are just so natural to us, but the much more ancient base 60 system was so useful that it still remains the most functional number system for some things in the modern world. Most of us look at adding degrees, minutes, and seconds like a foreign language, and yet it's basic mathematics. In order to add time of varying hours and minutes together, a person usually needs to use a special kind of time calculator and can't do it using a standard one. That's because most calculators work in base 10, while a time calculator works in base 60. Only when you have to do some calculations outside of the system that you're familiar with 
can you come to appreciate the complexity of different number systems and just how conditioned to base 10 we really are? But how was base 60 more functional and efficient than base 10? And why do we still cling to it 5,000 years later instead of replacing everything with base 10? 60 just happens to be the first number divisible by 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And in an age before calculators existed, the ability to divide as many numbers as evenly as possible was the preferred method since fractions could get tricky, especially before the advent of the decimal system which was invented only 500 years ago. Many old styles of measurements and even an entirely separate number system known as base 12 work well with the base 60 system. 12 is another number that evenly fits into 60 and could be easily counted using our hands. So how can we count to 12 using our hands? Well, look at your hand from the inside with the palm open. Each finger, all right, your four fingers, not your thumb, has a lower, middle, and upper segment that allows you to bend each finger into a crook. Kind of like what we do if we're making a claw with our hands. Now, take your thumb and touch each of the three segments on each of your four fingers, and you are able to count 12 total segments. This can be used to count within a base 12 number system, as well as a base 60 number system, in a quick and easy fashion. The base 60 number system helped the Babylonians understand the universe in brand new ways without running into nearly as many messy fractions that base 10 just can't help but get itself into. Base 60 is the number system that has unlocked the universe for humanity and has proved its resilience by existing into our instantaneous and globalized world today. Ultimately, we depend on it just as much as the Babylonians did. The sexagesimal system was so important that the Chinese developed it entirely independently from Babylonia for their own calendar system and quickly understood its universal importance as well. This connection between circles, the year, and the sexagesimal system must have been an exciting revelation for the hoary scholars of Babylon. They had to wonder what it all meant and continued to find truths of the universe using numbers and shapes, tracking the movement of the moon and sun through the sky, recording what they saw, and trying to connect it to our earthly cycle. How far back this really began, no one can say for certain. 
the Chinese lunar calendar came about independently of the Babylonian one because of the work of ancient Chinese astronomers. But it isn't considered older than the Babylonian lunar calendar. Before the Babylonians, any further information on how ancient people grappled with these problems and what makeshift solutions they used for keeping time seems to have gotten lost. But then, in 2004, in the northern climes of Scotland, archaeologists made a discovery on a farm called Warren Field. A series of 12 pits corresponding with the moon cycle had been discovered dating back to 8,000 BCE, or 10,000 years ago. Warren Field was twice as old as the Babylonian calendar, making the hunter and gatherers of Warren Field 5,000 years older than the earliest lunar calendar of the Babylonians. To compare how long ago this was, the humid Sahara had only just begun the process of turning into a grassland for thousands of years to come. As the Kiffians settled at Gobero for the first time in the newly bountiful Sahara, the hunter-gatherers of Scotland had erected what is now considered the earliest known of all lunar calendars. If this chance find wasn't uncovered, the Babylonians would still hold the record for the oldest lunar calendar 5,000 years too late. So, at Warren Field, a glimpse of the past once again briefly shivers before our eyes a touchstone into a people who understood the sky nearly as well as any Babylonian 5,000 years into their future. To this group, what the Babylonians would accomplish would have seemed unimaginable. A highly evolved future civilization that is just as far into their future as the Babylonians are into our past. Warren Field is a testament to the fact that the full story of humanity will never truly be known, as precious sites like these have been all too often overlooked or destroyed, which may have held lunar calendars twice as old as those at Warren Field. When discovered, places like this provide us with an insightful glimpse into how early humanity was able to understand the universe around them. Too often, we discount how aware they were because they didn't have the scientific knowledge that we do today. We live in an age where entire television series are dedicated to attributing ancient complex structures to aliens. But these people were not as easily distracted as we are today. The sky's value was more meaningful to these distant ancestors when its signs foretold all sorts of events, weather, animal migration, movements, seasons, and direction. Ultimately, 
the sky held signs that correlated with life or death back on Earth. The hunter-gatherers of Warren Field lived in a climate that was much more variable than the Babylonians, so the differences in the seasons would have been much more pronounced. That far north, winter comes with frigid temperatures and snow, with the sun setting before 4 p.m. in the winter and after 10 p.m. in the summer. The long and dark winter nights would only be lit up by the stars, moon, and occasionally the ghostly auroras. The twelve annual cycles of the moon gave the same regularity for the distant people of the British Isles as they did with any Babylonian many millennia later. This far north, people need to plan very differently for each season, having such a high variability in daylight, temperature, weather, and resources. What makes the lunar calendar at Warren Field special is how it shows that these ancient people also struggled with the problematic fact that the lunar year did not match the tropical year, something the Babylonians partially handled with their 360-day year compromise. Following the moon alone would frustrate any alignment with the critical seasons. So the hunter-gatherers of Warren Field reset the lunar calendar each year during the winter solstice. This allowed each year to keep the 12 moon cycles by using a solar marker to determine when the lunar calendar started each year. The problem these ancient people came up against was the very same problem the Babylonians reached 5,000 years later. The seasons have nothing to do with the moon, and instead, everything to do with the tilt of the earth in space and our movement around the sun. While the hunter-gatherers of Warren Field couldn't possibly know this, they did know that they could realign the moon each year on this one special day where the sun's light was the shortest for the entire year. And 5,000 years later, the Babylonians did something similar to fix the same problem of the lunar year, not quite matching up with the tropical year. And as we know today, a 360-day year is not enough to correct this problem. So instead of realigning the lunar calendar each year on the solstice, the Babylonian solution to the same problem was to add an additional 13th month every few years, which kept the seasons and the moon cycle more or less in check. This is a process known as intercalation. This 13th month realigns the seasons and puts the universe back in order again for us. For thousands of years, the intercalation system was the calendar used by many cultures all over the world 
and the traditional Jewish, Islamic, and Chinese calendars still use such a system today. It was the best solution before more precise observations could be made. It was also a widely held belief for millennia that the lunar year aligned back up with the tropical year every 19 years. This meant that after 19 years, the lunar calendar would line up with the seasons just like it did 19 years previously. This 19-year realignment of the sun's and the moon's calendars is called the metonic cycle. While this was a good rule of thumb, the metonic cycle was still inaccurate. Just as the year is not precisely 365 days and zero seconds, the lunar cycle did not exactly match up every 19 tropical years either. Frustratingly, 235 lunar months is 1 hour, 27 minutes, and 33 seconds longer than 19 solar years. So, no matter the system, time measurement remained imprecise. For thousands of years, humanity held a stalemate with the universe, using variations on the lunar calendar until someone could untangle its secrets as centuries passed by, like waves crashing on the shore. Chapter 3 Part 2 Solar and Lunar Deities Despite being a daily presence in the sky, the sun and the moon still continued to hold secrets from human reach. This combination of being both omnipresent and elusive was ripe to trigger the mythological and religious responses biologically ingrained into our minds. Hundreds of solar and lunar deities have come from nearly every single culture on Earth, and each has mythology associated with them. But Within these mythologies, glimpses can be gleaned about the human understanding of the universe at the time of their creation. These mythologies were not just frivolous and fancy stories. They were the fabric weaved out of the minds of ancient cultures to provide a framework and structure for understanding everything around them. Explanations for the sun and the moon were universally warranted in every culture, with good reason. Exploring the role of the sun and the moon in different mythologies further helps us gain insight into these ancient cultures. And despite their many differences, there are noticeable similarities that cut across cultures as well. In ancient China, the mother of the sun, Si Ho, would ride a chariot carried by the sun across the sky. 
this image of a god or goddess riding across the sky is repeated in India, Babylonia, Greece, and Egypt. Yet, China had a viewpoint of the sun that was all its own as well. Chinese mythology claims that, at first, there wasn't only one sun, but ten suns, one for each day of their ten-day week. Sihul would choose only one of the ten each day to ride across the sky, and at night she would put them away in a mulberry tree at the edge of the world and select the next for the following day's journey. In this way, each of the suns would take turns and preserve the delicate balance needed by the earth. Then, one day, the ten sons decided that they didn't like waiting their turn and wanted to all come out into the sky together, at the same time. Carelessly, the ten sons started scorching the earth all at once and turning it into a fiery hellscape, burning everything to the ground. Sihul's husband, the great emperor god Dijun, called for the help of an archer named Ho Yi. There are a variety of ways the myth is interpreted from here, but one of the most popular includes Ho Yi first pleading with the sons, who do not listen to his reason. Even Emperor Di Jun, the son's own father, is said to have admitted that his children needed to be killed because the earth cannot go on in such destruction, and gave Ho Yi the arrows for the job. Ho Yi's aim was true, and he goes on to kill all of the sons but one, which continued the usual trek across the sky daily with Si Hul, just as they did before. Ho Yi's divine status is up for debate, as it is a myth and interpretations vary. But whether he was born a man or made mortal by a grieving emperor Dijon, the next part of the myth focuses on Ho Yi's mortal life. Ho Yi's fine archery skills against the terrible destruction of the Ten Sons earned him the love of the people, who went on to make him king. There, the power goes on to corrupt Ho Yi, and he turns into a tyrant king, a hero turned villain. This change in character of Ho Yi from good to evil is especially difficult on his wife, who met Ho Yi before the terror of the Ten Sons and remembers the days when they were a young, happy couple in love. But by this point in the story, his wife, Chang A, knows how dangerous Ho Yi has become, and their young love had soured. Ho Yi, now the tyrant king, is said to have become possessed by the need for immortality and set about finding a potion for it in which he ultimately succeeded in doing. Ho Yi stored the elixir away and only Chang A knew of its location. Chang A knew what 
terror Ho'i would reign upon the people if he became their immortal king, and as he called for the elixir, Chang'e got a hold of the bottle and recognized that fate was now in her hands. Ho'i was now as heartless as the sons that he had once destroyed and willing to sacrifice anything for his whims. The people he once fought to protect were nothing compared to his now maniacal focus on immortality. Seeing the hesitation in Chang'e giving him the bottle, Ho'i came to take it from her. In the ensuing struggle, Chang'e drinks the elixir as a last resort without thinking and transforms into a goddess and ascends to the moon. Ho'i is said to have died in a rage watching Chang'e ascend from earth, losing his one chance at immortality. A slightly less tragic version of this myth has Ho'i remaining loving and loyal to Chang'e, but when someone tries to come and steal the elixir, she drinks it down to stop the thief. And when Ho'i finds out he is heartbroken for the remainder of his life, where he would go out at night under the moon to spend time in her light. And in yet another version, when Ho'i dies, he goes up to the sun, and Ho'i and Chang'e become the personification of yin and yang. In Chinese mythology, the moon resembles more of a forest with a jade rabbit that accompanies Chang'e, made famous for its own self-sacrifice. There is a cassia tree being eternally chopped down by a man, Wu Gong, who was banished from earth for a short attention span until he's able to completely cut it down. In a Sisyphean fate with each branch Wu Gong chops down, it grows back by the time the next one is gone. There is also an old man on the moon named Yu Lao, who decides on all of the marriages that will ever occur on earth and writes them down in his book where it becomes fate. In celebration of these lunar deities, particularly the selflessness of Chang'e, the Chinese hold the Mid-Autumn Festival, more commonly called the Moon Festival, a time for harvest, a time for families to come together and feast. Mooncakes and lanterns are staples of the Moon Festival, and families will take walks in the night or look up at the moon at the same time as a loved one, who may be far off. The festival has roots that are more than 3,000 years old, and its date varies every year because it is pinned to the 15th day of the 8th lunar month on the Chinese calendar. In ancient Egypt, the night sky was represented by the sky goddess Nut, who is sometimes portrayed as an outstretched woman wearing a garment of stars, possibly a personification of the Milky Way. Representing the heavenly vault above, 
The Egyptians believed that she ate the sun and that it traveled through her body over the course of a night where she gave birth to it again the following morning. As no harm was done and there was predictability in this daily ritual, Newt was not seen as posing a danger to the order of the universe, but rather was an integral part of it. According to Professor Wilkinson's book, The Complete Gods and Goddesses of Ancient Egypt, Nut is an important goddess in the pyramid texts, where she took part in the resurrection of dead kings, possibly in their new life as stars. One later version of a myth involving Nut was relayed by Plutarch, who lived in the 1st century CE, and directly relates to the calendar. Wilkinson summarizes the myth, stating, quote, The sun god placed a curse on the sky goddess, stopping her from giving birth on any day of the 360-day year. The god Hermes, or Thoth, came to Newt's aid, however, and won five extra days for the year enabling the goddess to bear her children." End quote. The fact that the Egyptian god Thoth is called Hermes by Plutarch just goes to show how late this myth was recorded. Plutarch, who lived during Roman times, would have called the god Hermes by his Roman name, Mercury. By this point, Hermes was an outdated name used by the waning Greek influence on Roman culture. At some point in Greco-Roman society, the Egyptian god Thoth became associated with the Greek god Hermes, despite Thoth being a completely separate god from a completely separate culture. The fact that they mentioned the 360-day year of antiquity being given five additional days, creating our 365-day modern calendar for Newt to give birth, likely indicates that this myth was relatively newer than most Egyptian myths of the time. By the time Plutarch would have written this, the 365-day calendar would have already been in effect all over the Roman Empire for over a century. But why is it that Thoth would have been the one to help Newt? And why is he credited with finding the five additional days in the calendar? Thoth was typically depicted as having a human body with the head of an ibis and was said to travel across the sky as the moon. As the embodiment of the moon, he became widely respected and worshipped across Egypt. His main city where he was worshipped was called Hermopolis the Hellenized name of the city, which once again associated him with Hermes. Thoth was also symbolized by a baboon that was often depicted in a crouched position, looking up at the sky, 
sometimes wearing a lunar disk on its head. As far back as the 14th century BCE, giant 30-ton baboon statues of Thoth were erected in this pose. Sometimes the moon was anthropomorphized as a baboon for its association with Thoth. Thoth was still popular 1,000 years after his baboon statues were erected, and even after the Persian invasion into Egypt. In the 4th century BCE, the high priest of Hermopolis created a tomb for himself, decorated with images of Thoth. Thoth's strongest relationship to people was with the scribes of Egypt, who are associated with magic and wisdom. It's not surprising that those who were able to read and write in the ancient world were seen as wise or even magical. In Ionia, Thales may have been seen as magical by being able to make a prediction using math that the majority of the population didn't understand which would be indistinguishable from magic to them. Just as the tribes of Jamaica became wary when Columbus predicted an eclipse, the ancient Egyptians must have seen the prescience of the scribes as magical with wisdom beyond their grasp. Scribes were those who dedicated their time to understanding the night sky, the moon, upcoming seasonal changes, as well as long spans of time or eclipses. Thoth is often depicted as advising kings, and Wilkinson says, quote, An important motif is that which shows him notching the palm branch, which was ritually used for recording years. End quote. It seems that Thoth and his scribes would have been the ones most responsible for understanding time, creating calendars, and marking dates. This is also cited as a reason why Thoth was associated with baboons, whom Egyptians knew would cry out as the sun rose each day. Therefore, the baboons had an association with marking the passage of time by changes in the sky. It makes sense, then, that it was Thoth who helped Newt find the five additional days in the year to bear her children. The sun god Ra, who cursed Newt, would outshine Thoth in every way, just as the sun outshines the moon and his cult would be based in Heliopolis, which was one of the most important urban centers in all of Egypt, and also is remembered with a Greek name. As in ancient China and ancient Egypt, the Greek titan Helios rode his chariot across the sky during the day to a magical land on the horizon. Helios had a son, Phaeton, who insisted on driving his father's chariot across the sky one day, instead of Helios. Helios gave his son the reins, but like in the Chinese myth, 
Things did not go well, and order was lost. Phaeton, unable to control the steeds, began scorching the earth and people. To end the tragedy, Zeus had to kill Phaeton with one of his classic thunderbolts, who fell from the sky dead into a river. As for the moon, it was personified by the titaness Selene, who is often depicted wearing a lunar disc on her head similar to the one Thoth wore on occasion. Selene's most popular myth involves falling in love with the shepherd prince Endymion, who was granted eternal youth and sleep while Selene watched. Also, like in China and Egypt, multiple gods in Greece were associated with the sun and moon. The most prominent were the twins Apollo and Artemis, the god of the sun and light, and the goddess of the moon and the hunt, respectively. The twins had a titanous ant known as Asteria, who was associated with night, the stars, and oracles, and who interpreted dreams and practiced astrology. Asteria was lucky enough to be one of the few females who escaped Zeus's lust, but there was a cost to her freedom from him. To escape, she had to permanently change shape and become the island of Delos in the Aegean Sea. This action later came to the aid of her sister, Leto, who succumbed to Zeus's lust, but, in turn earned Hera's wrath. Delos just happened to be the only island on Earth that Leto could rest long enough from Hera's rage to give birth to Apollo and Artemis. Apollo and Artemis would both go on to become powerful in their own right, with nearly opposite features. While Apollo was day-dwelling and civilized with arrows as sharp as the piercing sun, Artemis preferred the woods at night, and when struck with her arrow, the prey would slowly lay down, fall asleep, and die. The temple of Artemis in Lydia became one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, and was even partially funded by King Croesus before his defeat by the Persians. Her temple, which was 425 feet by 225 feet, was almost twice the size as the one built for Apollo at Delphi, which was about 197 feet by 74 feet. However, as with nearly all sun gods, Apollo became more popular than his twin sister. His power was so great that he became the primary god to worship for both Greeks and Romans. Apollo was the only god in the Greek pantheon whose name was not changed to a Romanized form. Asteria did not just provide the island for the birth of Apollo and Artemis, she also had her own daughter, Hecate. Hecate is an enigmatic titaness whose true purpose in Greek mythology 
still remains elusive to this day. Hecate is often portrayed as having three heads and is associated with the moon and the night, but more sinisterly with magic, witches, ghosts, and necromancy. Hecate was the goddess that Medea was said to have worshipped and gave her the powers to cause eclipses. She was the daughter of a Titanus mother associated with stars and nighttime prophecies and a Titan father of destruction, making Hecate a particularly potent deity. She was often associated with, or sometimes even shared characteristics with, other lunar goddesses including Artemis and Selene. Hecate seems to be most strongly associated with the night of a new moon, when no moon can be seen in the sky, which was also considered the end of the month. The end of the lunar month was a time where the line between the natural and supernatural world blurred and an offering to Hecate, sometimes at a three-way crossroads, would help earn her powers or favor. Called Hecate's Depnon, this offering was a time for reflection over the last month as well as a time to clear out and reorganize for the upcoming month. And let's not forget that solar eclipses only occur when there is a new moon, which would tie Hecate to both the eclipses and the perceived disorder associated with them. The moon and the sun have a deep psychological impact on us even when they are not surprising us with eclipses. They have guided us, kept time for us, given order to us, all without knowing truly what they were for most of human history. In turn, we have made stories and characters out of them. We have given them religious, mythical, and legendary significance. But most of all, the moon and the sun drew our eyes upwards, brought us to wonder, and helped us to discover the secrets of the universe. listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast, as each one 
goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at no character limit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.